Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I am Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome to Couched. Today, we're delighted to have two exciting guests. The first is Dr. Robert J. Lifton, psychiatrist, psychohistorian, and award-winning author of over 20 books. Bill Moyers has described Dr. Lifton as one of the world's foremost thinkers on why we humans do such awful things to each other. And Dr. Andrew Samuels, welcome. Dr. Andrew Samuels is known in the therapy world as a leading advocate for what he calls the political turn. In the UK, he founded the Analysis and Activism Group, as well as the Psychotherapists and Counselors for Social Responsibility. Originally trained as a Jungian analyst, Andrew is a tenured professor and author of 11 books translated into 21 languages. We're delighted to welcome you back to Couched, Robert, and to welcome you for the first time, Andrew. Please go to our website, www.couchedpodcast.org, to read more about their many accomplishments and their work. Given that both of you work on such a wide range of topics, we could easily go in any number of directions. But today we want to focus, at least initially, on your views on the upcoming U.S. election, Robert, can you start us off by sharing your initial reflections? It's a large question and still a troubling one. But I do think something has taken place in the last few months of the greatest importance. And that has to do with the breakdown of Trump's and Trumpist reality system. They had certainly express themselves in an alternate reality mode, as many have pointed out. And that had succeeded at not exactly putting forward their truths, but in confusing the country and much of the world about what they stood for and where truth and reality lay. But with the appearance of the coronavirus, their reality claims have been upended. They have broken down. I won't say that Trump has individually broken down, although he seems close to that at times, but rather his reality claims have broken down. With the coronavirus, that kind of falsification doesn't work. It's physical, organic, enormously contagious, results in illness and death, in bodily expressions, which can be denied or rejected, but cannot be eliminated from the general perception. And that has resulted in a breakdown of reality structure that has continued in relation to various forms of protest, Black Lives Matter, extending into a protest against inequality and suppression of any kind. So I'll start by making that comment on Trump's breakdown of reality structure, which has resulted in increasingly 
extreme statements, and finally, his entrapment in his own falsifications with his acquiring the coronavirus and his attempts to continue to falsify the significance of that. I'll begin with my initial thoughts. One thing that interests me at the moment is the question of voting for Biden without really feeling it. Voting for Biden with what you Americans call a clothes pin and we call a clothes peg on your nose. People will do it. They're right. They should do it. They should vote for someone they don't necessarily have a high opinion of. But what does it do to them? That's the thing I'm working on at the moment in my communications with friends and colleagues in the United States. You're torn. You're torn between what Max Weber, the sociologist, called the ethics of conviction, which means voting for somebody you really want to vote for, and the ethics of responsibility, which means doing the right thing for your nation, for your society, and so on. Yes. Here I would say something about what we face. In my work with Nazi doctors, I came upon the idea of malignant normality. That means what it says. The imposition of something that's considered ordinary and expected, but is deeply destructive to a society. So that the physicians who sent Jews to the gas chamber at Auschwitz were not violating the law. They were doing what was expected of them, conducting their part, doing their job in maintaining malignant normality. Trump and Trumpists have brought a version of malignant normality to American society. In response to that, and this is in response also to your statement, in response to that, I advocate and see before me the appearance of what can be called witnessing professionals. I include you and me in that, and anyone who seeks to expose, bear witness to malignant normality and oppose it, take an active stand against it. When one looks at things from that perspective and sees ourselves as witnessing professionals, one doesn't have to plug one's respiratory system when voting for Biden. One can vote for Biden with considerable enthusiasm, not because he's charismatic, he's not, but because there's a level dimension that works from truth. As witnessing professionals, we see the danger of Trump's malignant normality to the country and to the world, and we see an alternative to malignant normality, working from actuality and evidence. I will vote for that with considerable enthusiasm. I would vote for Biden, and I end every post on numbers and numbers of lists that I'm on with vote Biden, and I put it in red. However, your political system 
with its dependence on a particular kind of financial arrangement is known all over the world for its corruption. And in many ways, Trump is an expression of the system. If we are going to talk as psychological professionals, then we have to, as well as having passion, we have to have an intellectual telescope on the systemic aspects of what's going on. We have to get rid of this man. It's absolutely clear. But we shouldn't stop thinking whilst we do it. And we shouldn't stop thinking about the future, is what I say. I would like to say something about the relationship of Trump and Trumpists, I mean the people around him and who enable him, to the American experience. It's not either or. It's wrong to say that Trump is a mere symptom of what's wrong with America. That's not quite true, or it's half true. And it's also wrong to say that the whole problem is Trump and Trumpists and nothing more. It's a very problematic dynamic that includes both. There's a long American tradition, as I think you're saying and implying, of know-nothingism, of antagonism to government and governance of any kind, which Trump is related to, and of certainly distrust of elites of any kind and distrust of reality itself. That's in the American grain. On the other hand, Trump is also an extraordinary figure, and I characterize his relationship to reality as solipsistic. What that means is that his relationship to reality depends entirely upon the self and what the self needs and is impervious or can be impervious to the reality of large numbers of others and to standards of evidence as such. This solipsistic reality, which we usually expect from psychotics, is present in a man who is apparently not quite psychotic and has the capacity to manipulate the solipsistic reality so that sometimes it's manipulated lies and sometimes it's believed in falsehoods or some combination thereof. And it's that dynamic of Trump and Trumpists with the American tradition that we as witnessing professionals must combat. There are areas where one's professional knowledge is crucial and the raison d'etre for our involvement in this kind of issue. And a lot of my efforts have been in the service of mobilizing that professional knowledge and bringing it to bear on this conversation. I completely agree that the notion of neutrality or even-handedness is an out-of-date and inappropriate position for a psychological commentator on politics to adopt. If we are talking as professionals bearing witness, then we do have to say something about the followers, the voters. And here we need a model and an approach to leadership that understands how these brutes work their magic. 
Carl Gustav Jung referred to them as medicine men, which is a very unfortunate and out-of-date term, but everybody knows what it means. He also used the word mana, the mana personality. I take a more Freudian view, which may seem odd as a Jungian analyst. I think that leaders like Trump plug into the energies attached to the hero, and heroic leaders who are usually disasters have for significant periods of time a hold over their followers. And that's what's happening in America at the moment with the whatever it is, 40%, the base. I don't know exactly what the percentage is. Now, it's not easy for liberals like all of us to use the word hero in relation to a sorry individual like Trump. But we need to understand why it works. That's the professional contribution. And that is not happening. With Trump, I would add a very important element of cultism. There is a cult-like interaction between Trump and many of his followers, and you can hear it in the chanting back and forth. In any case, and this is not disagreeing with what you said, Trump can become a heroic figure for many of his followers, and that cult-like figure becomes the object of the lives of followers, so much so that they offer themselves to him. And something like this provides, I would call, an experience of transcendence at his rallies. Followers are moved from their ordinary boring life into some higher realm. It's perceived as even spiritual. I had the experience of a friend and colleague, a psychiatrist who happened to be in Germany during the early Hitler years and was amazed when his fellow students, who was there because his father had a fellowship, amazed when his ordinarily reasonable and rational students went into a kind of ecstatic state in embracing Hitler as a solution to their lives and to the human future. There's something like that going on between Trump and many of his followers. And there's huge elements of fear as well as of enormous cultic respect. Yes. I'm very glad you brought the word spirit or spiritual in because the sad thing about spirit is that it's, it's politically neutral. It's up to us what we do with spirit. And I agree with you that there is a spiritual element in what's going on and a certain kind of social spirituality is taking place. I do think bringing in fundamentalism is really important. It's not quite cults, but it's got some similarities. And here it's the simplicity of the solutions that one needs to bear in mind. You know, I think an awful lot of Western liberals are pretty envious of fundamentalists because fundamentalists know what they think. I mean, we have a mixture of book learning and a certain kind of use of experience, but we don't any longer really know what we think. But if you belong to a fundamentalist group or you are at one of these rallies, or you are what you call a Trumpist. It reminds me of how Thatcher became Thatcherism. 
then you really do know where you stand. And an enormous arm, far greater than the man's actual physical arm, is placed reassuringly around your shoulders and you are propelled into an area of certitude. That's the selling point. And just to return to one point that I think is something that really needs to be understood when you talk about spirituality or spirit in relation to politics. It's there on the left. It's there in Black Lives Matter. It's there in Extinction Rebellion, for whom I work. It's there in outrage. It's absolutely there, but it's unfortunately there on the right, on the white supremacist groups. The job of the human being is to choose. That's both an existential and a political and a psychoanalytic position. In my book on Nazi doctors, I emphasized their reversal of healing and killing. In the extreme ideology that Hitler and some of those closest to him held, the Nordic race had once been great. It had become infected by Jews. The Jews had to be in some ways removed in order to restore the greatness of the Nordic race. Does that begin to sound familiar? With Trump, Trump and Trumpites have been come to be engaged in what I call presidential killing, killing to heal, not unlike or at least parallel to the Nazi reversal of healing and killing. Our president and his enablers have been responsible for tens of thousands of American deaths from the coronavirus. They have not only failed to take necessary steps to mitigate the effects of the virus, they have embraced those steps that are guaranteed to spread the virus and its effectiveness. And in that way, they have colluded with the virus. This is another reversal of presidential responsibility. There is a commitment to evidence and there is a commitment to confronting and combating this reversal of healing and killing, but it's got to be recognized for what it is. There is an economic gain in functioning in what looks like a completely sporadic, spontaneous, mindless, murderous attitude, because I do agree with that. And that is the economic aspect of it. Who benefits? You always have to ask, who benefits? Who benefits from people dying when colleges are opened, factories are opened, bars are opened, people dance on beaches? I mean, I'm muddling up different countries. Who benefits? The rich. What is also parallel, and incidentally, I'm not calling Trump a Nazi. He no, doesn't no. have enough of an idea system to be a Nazi. No. I'm looking for parallels. And another parallel, which is 
not limited to Trump or Hitler, but to any political movement, is the promise of revitalization on a vast scale. I had the opportunity to interview Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect, as you know, and very close to Hitler, maybe the only person in the whole Nazi circle who was close to him personally. But in any case, he told me how he was a, a young instructor in architecture at his university and had no hopes for the future. The economy had gone dead. There were no jobs. There was nothing to look forward to. Money was worthless. And Hitler came to his university and gave his relatively intellectual speech, which was the following. Germany is now suffering from the Versailles Treaty. There is no hope. But if we pull together, and if you follow me, I will unify our country, and we will all feel stronger. And the implication was be stronger, not only militarily, though certainly that, and economically, though certainly that, but spiritually and psychologically, so that Speer himself told me how he felt thrilled by this message, suddenly filled with hope, went and walked in this ecstatic state outside of Berlin in the famous forest there, and within a day or two joined the Nazi party. This promise of revitalization is crucial, and it has a large importance in Trump's movement, but much of it has been revealed to be false and outside of any possibility under Trump. And in that sense, the dynamic has shifted, and the Trumpist movement is still dangerous in what it might do, but it's struggling with the anticipation of defeat. There's much to comment on, but when you were speaking about revitalization, Robert, it brought me back to what you were talking about earlier, Andrew, with regard to the compelling erotic charge that certain leaders have that bring about this cultism. And definitely that feels like what's happening here. And with that cultism happening, there's a lot of fear that his followers and him will not agree to the results of the election should it go by way of Biden. And there's a lot of, I would say, not unreasonable, not unrealistic worry and concern about what's going to happen after. And I was wondering if either of you could comment or think about what's going on in that dynamic and what might unfold. I know none of us have a crystal ball, but what might unfold? Can I say that this is where the lack of passion in so many people who will vote Biden, and I would vote Biden, could become really problematic. If there is a terrific split in the American body politic and what seems to people like ourselves, a palpable victory for the Democrats is rejected on the grounds of mail-in voting fraud or whatever it is. I have something to say about this because I've been talking about it quite a lot. And it's rather harsh. 
and it does in fact position the United States as a failed state. I think an awful lot is going to depend on what the Joint Chiefs of Staff have to say, if it goes that way. When they recover from their COVID virus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I do think what they have to say, how they act and how they position themselves is something more important than in the mind of a novelist like Philip Roth. It's going to be really important what the military does. Well, I agree. And it'll be very important. And here Trump has helped us with his cavalier dismissal of the military and of the military's own standards. And a major source of this unwillingness on the part of Trumpites or Trumpists to leave office has to do with the delegitimation of opposition on the part of the Republican Party that began a couple of decades ago, at least with Newt Gingrich. Nothing starts entirely with Trump. And if you delegitimate the opposition, it must be defeated at all costs and by any method of dirty tricks that one can call forth. I think that where Biden lacks charisma, perhaps that's partly balanced by the intensity of the involvement of the whole Democratic Party and the intensity of their preparations at every single state and voting area. So there could well be enormous confusion and a need for decisions about who is in office. I don't think that the Democrats are lying down before this. And uh, I have hopes that despite whatever confusion can be sown by Trump and his enablers, it won't be enough to overcome the level of defeat on the part of the American people of him and those around him. And of course that could entail the military and probably will. And I don't say this with some absolute conviction, but I say it with an expectation that as battered as American institutions have become, and as much as Trump has again followed a Nazi pattern, what was called Gleichschaltung, which means reordering of institutions simply by removing those who aren't completely loyal and replacing them with people who are considered loyal. As much as that has happened, there have been significant remnants of these institutions, including in Congress and the House of Representatives, importantly, including in the courts and including in professionals throughout the society, enough remnants of our battered institutions to bungle through in this case. That's my expectation. Thank you. Actually, I agree, by the way. I agree. And I think the United States is greatly helped by its federal constitution because power is more devolved than it was in 1930s Germany. But I wanted to pick up, because I was very excited uh, about dirty tricks. We have to use every dirty trick. Absolutely. 
I mean, my my main thesis is on the role of the political trickster. And as with spirit, tricksters are neutral. They're neither good nor bad. It's kind of up to them. You can't really control them. But I do think that you match tricksterism with tricksterism, like you match eroticism with eroticism. And I'm sorry to say that whatever you call it, the Democrats, the liberals, radicals, progressives, the passion, the tricksterism and the spirit flows rightwards. Now, we've seen it in Britain. We saw it when Margaret Thatcher completely dismantled the wonderful achievement of the post-war welfare state. She could not be stopped because she managed to sell a vision in which spirit, trickery, and so forth were all mixed up. So I agree with you very much. The way to counter the man who stands on the balcony of the White House and whips off his mask is to find a sufficiently tricksterish response. Now, I can't tell you, just talking out of my own mind, what that might be. But I would be very pleased if people began to think about it. It reminds me of the K-pop bands who bought up all the tickets to the Trump rallies and tricked right, the Trump administration into thinking that these rallies were going to be packed, and then they were empty. It's one small way in which young people use social media through TikTok to do something on that, I think, in that vein. But that's just small, but not insignificant. So I just want to jump in here for a sec. Often when we're talking about the political, people are thinking about governance. Who are the leaders? Who do we vote for? And yet it's clear that the citizens have a huge role in what's political, right? Psychoanalyst Edward Shapiro talks about the political as imagining oneself in some kind of group that links to and involves others, right? And we all have imaginary groups in our heads that we belong to and that we're acting out of or in concert with. And in order to be an effective trickster, one has to have a strategy and a plan which involves, you know, working usually with other people. And that creates an experience of a kind of active engagement in citizenship that is not only important, but because this is couched, is important that psychoanalysis engages with, right? That's one of the reasons that we developed Couched, is to think about how in the world can you really analyze anybody in this day and age without helping them think about their citizenship and how one experiences citizenship has to do with one's past experience in groups. So evangelicals are drawn to, you know, powerful, all-powerful, godlike leaders, and that becomes the basis of a cult-like worship. But that's not our idea of what being a citizen is. Well, I would say that the last talk I gave fairly recently before a psychoanalytic group, I emphasized that Psychoanalysis is a moral enterprise. We engage in it, whether as therapists or as researchers, in order to improve lives, even though sometimes we would just see ourselves as theoretical people who press toward knowledge. It's never simply that. 
I want to get back to Billy's point because I think it gets us on to something really important about citizenship. And this may be, Billy, because we were going to speak on a panel. Right. About, about citizenship. This, right. About citizenship. And I think there's a great danger in lumping all ways of being a citizen together. And I'm not talking about the danger of forgetting people's lived experiences of oppression, socioeconomic, cultural, ethnic factors. Those are terribly important. People just do politics differently. And that cuts right across right and left, right across Democrats and Republicans. Some people do politics where they try to take account of history. They try to take account of complexity. They develop ideas. Even on the right, they develop ideas. Other people fly by the seat of their pants. Other people bury their heads in the ground like ostriches. Other people can only do politics with other people. It's what I call sibling citizens. It just depends. And this is something very difficult for university departments of political science to get their minds around. And it's probably very difficult for newspaper leader writers, op-ed writers, I think you call them, to get their minds around. People just do it differently. They, it's a bit like artists. They express their artistic talents and sensibilities very differently. Now, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is back into the world of psychotherapy, where we are extremely competent at delineating differences and diversity. We know people do their therapy differently, and they just are different, not just because of their parents or their families, maybe some constitutional factors. So if we are talking about citizenship, I think we have to have this notion of what I call political style in mind. Yes, there is enormous individual variation in how psychotherapy or politics is conducted. Having said that, I'm asking for a broad social shift so that we have, for instance, professional ethics as they're defined very limitedly. You bring the latest ideas into your psychotherapy. You don't harm your patient. You do what's best for her or him under those circumstances. That's not enough. The threat now is to one's nation and even to humankind. The requirement has to do with a collective sense of consciousness or a sense of collective consciousness of vast danger to humankind. That may sound rather highfalutin, but it's literally true under our present circumstances. And that means that as citizens and professionals, we extend our ethical requirements to combating this kind of destructiveness. And that's a very tough and difficult thing to do. I find in the psychological professions, as I have engaged them recently, a hunger for just such an expansion of ethical commitment and a hunger for ways to do it. And that hunger is best transformed into action. And the action does require 
interplay with other people, whether directly or indirectly or from a distance, or with traditions that are of that kind of significance. I was going to say, you know, so what's a poor therapist going to do? What can psychotherapy do? Well, on its own, absolutely nothing. So we have to reach out. And I personally have identified a number of areas where I think there are grounds in many Western countries for serious long-term connections to be made between the psychotherapy world and the world of activist politics. The first is everything to do with the climate crisis and the environment. The second, and this is very hard, especially for private practice psychoanalysts in the United States, we need massive economic reform dedicated to and focused on economic justice and everything to do with race and ethnicity. There is a role for therapists there. However, in our offices, in our consulting rooms, we have to be more active and we need to really refine our clinical theories so that we become ever more adept at working with political, social, and cultural material as it comes up in the interaction with our clients. We're not very good at it because we are still suffering from the hangover of the days when you just didn't do that kind of thing. So change what you do in the therapy room because that is a place where you do have a say. Thank you both so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it really was. You're supposed to say you enjoy these things and thank everybody. But actually, this was fun. It was really amazing. Lovely. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid we have to stop for today. Okay. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. The political views expressed in this episode do not represent and are not endorsed by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.